0: Welcome. Put your protective face masks and earplugs on. This is Tales of Malifaux with your friendly neighborhood announcer. I have been requested to start today's show with a word about this season's fashion choices uniformity. In an unrelated way, but via similar means, I have also been asked to have a longer dialogue about information security. It is very that information is kept if knowledge about Got out, it could result in plenty of exploding. Should be protected at all. Failure to do so could lead to your exploding. Keep that in mind. Thank you. Now, our first of the finding new purpose. When played backwards, it reveals about
1: finding new purpose. May this soul and the souls of all the faithfully departed, through divine mercy, rest in peace, the priest said, offering the final rites to Francis, the Governor-General's son. Gathered around the grave were many officers of the guild, as well as those men and women who knew Francis in life. All were somber, and each held a candle before them. The Governor-General stepped forward and spoke in a soaring rhetoric, eulogizing his son. We are but pioneers in a strange and forbidding new land, he said to the throne, pioneers that risk life for future liberties. We have come here to return magic to a world that has seen it wane," he said, referring to Earth, and we make sacrifice every day, hoping, no, knowing that our sacrifice is to better our way of life and the lives of our children. We endure great hardships We endure the suffering brought upon us by savage creatures native to the wilds of this world. We endure the suffering brought upon us by misguided mobs bent against their own logic and manipulated against their own will to bring violence upon our own, he said in reference to the recent rebellion. Many union members in the audience shifted uncomfortably, but coming from the governor as he stood over the pine casket housing his son, they somewhat reluctantly nodded in mild agreement. My son paid a great price with his sacrifice. He came here not in the hope to build his own empire, not to make his own mark, but to help you build a new empire in a new world. He was an artist and a poet, and I often criticize his overly romantic notions as irrelevant. I'm sorry now to realize that his purpose was to remind us of why we make those sacrifices, to remind us why we struggle. And his sacrifice was met with jealousy or rage or some 2 attempt to strike out at me, he said, motioning toward a hastily dug grave in the cemetery where the remains of Officer Gideon, former captain of the guard, had been buried that same morning. Guardsman glanced toward it nervously, aware of the unmarked grave given to him for his dishonor. No one understood just how much his eulogy twisted the story to the governor's own political agenda as he continued, We must bury one of our innocent today. "'But we must remember his sacrifice and why it was made. "'Not as another cheap attack upon me by the ignorant, "'but as a reminder of how precious our time is. "'Let us use this as an opportunity. "'An opportunity to come together and build an empire "'that is unassailable and unshakable.' "'The crowd applauded, "'not aware that his eulogy had shifted into a political stump speech. "'Once ended, though, and the priest offered a final invocation over the box.' The mourners felt the resounding words of the Governor-General's speech echo within them as he intended. Words of sacrifice and unity struck them, and they felt the loss of the innocent. They blamed one of their own as the Governor-General intended them to. They mourned Francis more for their own guilt in thinking thoughts against the Guild, and chastised themselves for their thoughts of rebellion and discontent, and of forgetting the reason they had to unify rather than fragment. Even the sky over Malifaux seemed to mourn the passing of this man whose knowledge of love had tempered the heart he inherited from his father. It was a dim morning, and the nebulous clouds above swirled in an uncertain wind. A dynasty that might have been redeemed was lost. They buried that hope as they slowly lowered the young man's casket. Through the crowd pushed a tall, slender man. He walked with a cane, but his movements possessed a refined grace. He wore a long, black coat cut tightly upon his gaunt frame, and a tall hat rose on his head. His hawk-like nose supported the polished lenses of his spectacles, opaque in the reflected sun. Behind him, a portly man wearing a round bowler hat and a trench coat dirty at the edges began shoveling dirt onto the casket. The tall man patted the governor on the shoulder and gestured for him to turn away from the grave so he wouldn't need to watch the grim scene. By condolences, governor, he said with a gravelly baritone. Your son seemed a capable heir to your legacy. His loss will be a deep scar upon this city. The man's voice communicated well his cultured demeanor with a tone perfectly tuned to the situation. Yes. Fine, Nicodem. Attend your duties. The governor dismissed the man even as Nicodem bowed deeply and turned away from him to conference with his gathered marshals. Nicodem suffered this discourteous dismissal with the same grace that underlay everything he did. He rose slowly and turned back toward his associate, Mortimer, to leave the governor to his private business. Bless you, your lordship, and your house. This blessing went unheard as the governor-general's attention refocused on his personal staff. Amidst the wide-brimmed hats of his marshals, the governor found the thin man, Hoffman. The accent in this man's voice clearly distinguished him as a transplant from the king's empire. He had a stern and almost perpetually humorless expression on his face and dressed sharply, as befits a man from that cultured kingdom. In a leather harness he wore a brace to support his back, and the length of his legs were assisted by buzzing servos set in polished bronze struts. He held one of his arms across his waist in the grip of the other. The governor addressed him, saying, "'Mr. Hoffman, have you settled into your new office?' "'Yes, sir. Thank you for inquiring.' I've made good use of my time to familiarize myself with daily operational procedures as well as the impressive facilities available. In short order, I've redesigned several prototype systems, all improving upon basic system architecture. The Governor-General cut him off, clearing his throat and staring at him with a look of impatience. Sorry, sir, Hoffman said, just excited. I've also begun to research the primary charge of my office. "'Unfortunately, I need you to suspend your investigations into the Arcanists.' The governor looked over his shoulder, not at his son's grave, but at a series of five fresh mounds one hundred yards distant, belonging to five other men who had been buried there that same morning. All of them had suffered a fate similar to the mysterious murder of Captain Gideon. Each of them had been ritually slain, their bodies surgically cut open, and their hearts removed. All had been guild officers.' Several disturbing elements to the murders puzzled him and left even Lady Justice at a loss for explanation. Each guild officer had been slain within private quarters, or most disturbing to him, within the guild offices themselves. The governor would quickly look into the connections each officer held within the ranks, but at least two of them he knew were assigned directly to Gideon. He also did not like the way the murderer mocked him and his men with what the judge called a signature mark. Upon the forehead of every victim, the murderer engraved a very precise Three Kingdoms script. Guild officers had begun to analyze the meaning, but so far, their Asian scholars found the interpretation somewhat difficult to comprehend. This new killer is your primary concern now, the governor said to Hoffman. He has the ability to strike into the guild's most secure installations. Until he is captured, no officer is safe. Of course, sir, Hoffman said, but my expertise is in Mechanica, not the pursuit of killers. Certainly not those practising magic of subterfuge and obfuscation. I'm not exactly known for keeping a low profile, he said, rapping a knuckle on the metal of his assisting machinery. Madam Cridd, sir, would be better equipped. The Governor-General cut him off. Miss Cridd is... He paused, searching for the right words, but his tightly clenched fists conveyed some frustration Hoffman was not privy to. He couldn't know that Sonia Crid had recently taken herself beyond the Malifaux city lines on some quasi-official expedition, according to the last note she left. He couldn't know that the governor found her recent independence just short of the same level of insolence the union had been demonstrating. "'Miss Crid has other duties at the moment,' he lied. "'Do your best, Hoffman. You are turn to your assigned appointment shortly.' "'It will be as you wish, sir.' The man lifted his arm and gestured to a pile of metal squatting humbly nearby. A whir of gears sounded as the construct awoke, and the machine rose from its haunches to reveal its true shape. It was a hunter-class construct, now perched on its nimble legs. It quickly approached the side of its master. Hoffman took hold of a mechanism high up on the construct's shoulder and stepped awkwardly up onto the riveted brace near its hip. With the rig now moving in perfect unison with his crippled body, the man managed a rather stately pose as he rode aside his mechanical assistant. I will review the case files, and I am certain I can construct a profile and bring the guilty party to swift justice. You are dismissed, Hoffman, the governor said, before following after the slowly departing procession. Hoffman's construct bore him away in a cloud of smoke and steam, and the loud clanking of the metal articulation of its legs. In short order, only the undertaker and his assistant remained on sight. Nicodem stood, leaning against his cane, and watched his assistant labor with the pile of earth. They were silent for a long time as Nicodem had no need to fill the space with needless chatter. He turned his gaze up at the churning clouds overhead as Mortimer filled the grave. The Malifaux sky was almost continuously filled with dim clouds that masked the sun of this world. Eventually, he said, The goodly governor-general requested that precautions be taken to prevent reanimation of his departed son's body. Did you see to that, Mortimer? The portly gravedigger stuck his shovel in the ground and turned to lean on it. He fixed Nicodem with his eyes and chomped on the butt of a half-smoked cigar before taking it out. "'No, sir, I did not,' Mortimer scratched his sweat-soaked head in confusion. Nicodem grinned a malevolent smile at his assistant's response. "'That's a good man.' Mortimer didn't understand the joke but laughed and winked all the same. Nicodem turned to leave Mortimer to finish his labor and strode a short distance to the gates of the cemetery. He took his time to complete the journey— and when he reached the entrance, he drew out a cigarette case from his coat. The application of arcane art manifests differently in every person. Their abilities, their manipulation of those flowing energies, developed as unique as a fingerprint. Nicodem was aware of the dead bodies buried around him as he walked. It wasn't just that he could see them or even feel their corpses. He just knew they were there. With a slight press of his will, he could discern those that would most easily rise to obey him. All of those individuals adept in the resurrectionist arts felt that oddly intangible connection with the rotting flesh of once-living vessels, longing for some will to once again animate them. Nicodem's awareness of the dead was considerable. As he walked casually from the fresh grave, the habitual probing of his mind struck something in the magical ether that was at once extremely familiar and then completely foreign. He concentrated his will against the taut fabric of magic that coursed in and around him, and he grew more aware of a blighting of the energies that might be used to reanimate the dead. They were the energies of death and reanimation that he had an intimate affinity with, but somehow opposite of his understanding. As he reminded himself, mastering the magical arts manifested differently in every person. He was seeing something strangely phenomenal. Her connection to death was at least equal to his own. He could also discern from whence that feeling originated. You have nothing to fear from me, girl. Come on out. They've all gone, he said. Nicodem could see a girl hiding behind a nearby tree. When he spoke to her, she ducked behind it again. Come, I can see that you mourn. Let me accompany you to his place of rest. Karai hesitated, afraid but her desperation to see Francis, even at his final repose, grew far too great to ignore, despite the danger of walking in the open. She wore a modest black silk kimono of tradition, though Nicodem saw she was clearly embarrassed that she did not have the accompanying accoutrements, probably because of her low station and meagre means. Meekly she left her hiding place and approached the side of the courteous undertaker. The man put his hand on the girl's shoulder and led her gently toward the grave. Mortimer had finished his task and beat the earth flat with the back of his shovel. As the two approached, he stepped quickly aside, knowing his presence often disturbed the grieving. Once beyond Nicodem, though, he motioned with his shovel, pointed to his head and then to her, the smile on his toadish face revealing his hopeful expectation. Nicodem shook his head and motioned for the gravedigger to leave them. Karai fell to her knees beside the grave and lay prostrate over the fresh mound of earth, weeping. Even Nicodem felt the great disturbance of self-pity and saw it consume her. He knew then that she had little to live for. He had to be careful lest he push her too hard in the wrong direction. Yet he knew the vast depths of her grief might have been the very catalyst to allow her to manifest her connection with the dead. She felt a touch against her arm. That contact drew her back from the pit of her despair. You will honor his memory in life more than in death, child. Nicodem spoke with a soothing and warm whisper. Karai opened her eyes. Tears blurred her vision, and her body refused to move even an inch. I cannot live without him, she said, her breath catching. Nothing matters. Nicodem knelt beside the girl and shook his head. Hmm, yes. It is difficult to go on, I know. Because you could not join the mass eulogizing the lad, I must assume you and he shared something private, very personal. A secret only the two of you shared? She nodded, though he could have said the same to any grieving loved one at a funeral, and they might have each said the same. Something about this girl, though, led him to believe the lovers shared something beyond the norm. Despite her painful grief, Karai could not help but be comforted by the man's presence. In the days following France's death, she had been alone with no one to show her any compassion, Guards searching for her had kept her from going home, and the staff of the Ki Gong had turned her away. She gazed up at the man. In front of this stranger, she tried to compose herself, wiping her nose on her sleeve. His sympathetic gaze, though, invited her to resume her mourning. What is the point? she sobbed, before collapsing against him, throwing her arms around his shoulders. He held her like that for a while beside the grave of her lover. She cried until her body was exhausted from it and no more tears would come. Still, he held the girl for some time after she'd gone limp in his arms. In time, Nicodem's soothing tone came again as he said, I have seen such loss as this. You believe you are lost as well? Do you have nothing left to live for? She nodded. You live so that you can carry on his memory, of course, he said. Sweeping his arm toward the grave. There is still more for you to do, child. Karai sniffled and lifted her eyes, looking up at the man's bespectacled eyes. Still so meek, her voice came in little more than a whisper. What can I do? He smiled. You have already done so much, and you do not even realize. Nicodem rose and took the girl by the hand. A discreet distance away, Mortimer was busy leaning against a tree, examining the gnawed stump of his unlit cigar. As they approached, Nicodem said, Mortimer, dig up this casket. Motioning to the unmarked grave, still freshly dug. Sir, I went to put him in the ground just this morning, Mortimer protested. Nicodem said nothing, though, and Mortimer begrudgingly complied and began digging at the mound he'd just packed hours earlier. While Mortimer laboured, Karai did nothing at all. She had detached herself from the others, certain that her very reason for living had already been buried. Nicodem, meanwhile, studied the girl and carefully considered the actions of the previous days and the alarming discovery he'd made of this young woman and her link with the power of spirituality. Finally, with a heave and a grunt, Mortimer had the casket thrust back out into the open. Nicodem slowly said, I do not mean to alarm you, child, but there is something you need to see. There is a corpse in this box. Are you prepared to see it? Why? she asked numbly. Karai felt overwhelmed and looked longingly over her shoulder at the grave of her lover. You know the man in this box. And he will show you the proper way to honor your lost beau. Nicodem had chosen his words carefully. Though this girl wanted nothing more than to expire at the side of her lover's grave, the word honor held significant weight with her. The dead were meant to be honored. Memories of them celebrated. There were words that tugged at her commitments to tradition. After several long moments looking back at Francis Gray, she glanced at the emerald-studded ring on her finger. It seemed to her that it throbbed in time with the beating of her heart. Looking up at Nicodem again, she nodded her head. Even if his guess about her proved incorrect, she would be valuable to him in other capacities— the body within the pine casket would bring their journey to a new understanding. Nicodem opened the casket to reveal the ruined remains of Gideon, the killer of her lover, and the first victim of this powerful new killer before him. Though the coroner had stitched much of him back together, the violence he had experienced could not be hidden. The horror he had felt was frozen in his features, an expression of terrified madness. Despite the mutilation, Karai did recognize him, She would never be able to erase the image of him from her mind. She clasped her hand over her mouth and stood frozen looking down at the dead man. He is the one. And now he's dead? Karai's voice was soft and distant, though she could not believe that he could be dead so soon after killing Francis. Then it is finished, she said. There is nothing left. I thought to confront him after speaking to Francis. Her words came with difficulty and her accent thick in her exhaustion. He left his pistol with me, so that I might kill myself. I intended to confront him and fulfill his wish. She withdrew Gideon's pistol from her kimono. She looked at it emotionlessly. Nicodem placed his long fingers upon it, gently pressing it away from her. You will not need this, young lady. Her dark eyes looked up at him, conveying her desire to end her pain the only way still available to her. You saw him in his cell, didn't you? Nicodem asked with suddenly forceful tone. You found Captain Gideon still alive. His urgency frightened her. Gone was the genteel man comforting her. He was strong and commanding and fierce. Her eyes widened with fright and she fell backward, scrambling on the ground. No, no, that's impossible. Nicodem grabbed hold of Gideon's torso, pulling it from the box and dropped it face down before her. Carved on his forehead was a kanji symbol, now purple and black from the drying blood and brutality to the flesh. Her eyes widened as the memories came, memories she'd hidden from herself. The blood-sickened walls, the cage of entrails, the sound of Gideon's screams as his torso was cut, as his ribs were split open. Their vision faded into darkness, and she felt herself falling, tumbling into unconsciousness. In that darkness, however... She saw two ruddy orbs glowing like beacons in the mist. They approached her quickly, and their dim light revealed an indistinct form. The spirit reached for her, and as she fell, she reached out for it in return. Her fingers met the spirit's, and at the contact there was a sudden arc of energy that jolted her into consciousness again. Breath surged into her burning lungs, and she gasped. I, I, it was me. I killed him, she asked. She was suddenly aware of the truth, though she didn't understand it. I killed him, she said with finality. Standing above her was the towering undertaker who bent over and reached out for her. Yes, child, come. We have much to speak of.
0: now for a human interest news story. As the opening shots have been fired in a fury of northern aggression, a new railway has opened in a more unlikely place in Malifaux. Don't expect it to be letting on on board any passengers anytime soon though. Travelling reporter Helmut J. Simson came upon it whilst following up on a tip about a rumoured three-headed pig. In the middle of a forest clearing there was a ramshackle miniature railway. Little more than a collection of boxes bolted together, the carriage was filled with cargo and half a dozen gremlins. They looked greener than usual, perhaps due to an inexperience with locomotive travel. When he saw said contraption, all Simpson could utter was, I don't get it, it just keeps going and going. This utterance makes more sense when the design of the track is taken into consideration. No stations, no stops, just a perfect circle a round and a round. Simpson managed to grab a few words from the line's foreman, a gremlin aptly named Sparks. Simpson also made notes of how hard it was to pick out the creature's gender, on account of the amount of muck on the creature and the fact that gremlins are hardly sentient anyway. Sparks said that the crew on the train had been hard at work on the vessel for a week, delivering a very important cargo. Simpson writes, He was very tempted to point out the folly of this venture on a perfectly circular track, but just lost the heart to tell the creature otherwise. He left the clearing somewhat confused by the whole thing. I hope you haven't had enough of those comical critters, for they feature in our next story, Ruins in the Bayou.
1: Ruins in the bayou. While Perdita's crew struck into the heart of the bayou, just a few miles away and under a column of smoke was a small prospector's camp that had been forcefully commandeered by a company of hungry gremlins. One of the creatures, equipped with a roughly shaped machete, worked at quartering and butchering a horse. Nearby, a pair of wiry creatures hefted a giant earthenware cauldron into place over a campfire. As the butcher finished a cut, he tossed a hunk of horse meat into the simmering water. Why are we eatin' horse again? squawked one of the scrawny gremlins. You know I likes the piggies better. We needs em. That's why. It wasn't the butcher to answer, but a large fleshy gremlin that towered over his companions. We needs our piggies for the fightin'. His body wasn't the only thing that was larger. The creature held a huge blunderbuss against his shoulder his finger stroking the trigger as if he were eager for a reason to use it. Though a relic by human standards, just a museum piece at best, the gun was not only much longer than the other guns they liberated from the miners, but its muzzle was so big he could put a whole fist in the end of it. Bigger meant better in almost all cases, so the gun was another reminder that he was the boss. The monster lumbered into the camp and sat his lumpy body next to the fire. He stretched his legs out, and the nubs of his toes wiggled in the open soles of his worn-out boots. "'Ah, Jones, I didn't mean nothing by it. Honest, I didn't,' the smaller gremlin pleaded. Jones grumbled but said nothing, and the gremlins around him went back to their former distractions. Then he thought the better of it, and picked up the little gremlin by the back of the neck, kicking and flailing, frantically trying to escape the bigger one's grip. Jones tromped through the mud to a makeshift pig pen beside their camp and tossed him over the fencing. He fell amid the smaller pigs in the mud and filth. The gremlin camp went into an uproar at the sight of one of their own amidst the piglets and adolescent boars. The boars began to charge and knock the gremlin about, and in a panic he began jumping and weaving among the hungry beasts, much to the delight of the onlookers. Having the attention of the entire troop on him, though, caused the mud-covered gremlin to get creative in his dodging of the animals waiting at the last moment to jump out of the way, pulling their tails and playing up to his riveted audience. He didn't realize his folly until a near-grown adolescent boar sent him sailing with a powerful charge. And that's when the panicked gremlin dashed for the fence in all haste. He almost made it. The gremlin onlookers thought it was a marvelous show and cheered loudly. The ruckus subsided and everyone forgot about the pigs. Jones watched in growing irritation as one of the younger gremlins hopped about pretending he was a toad. With his large lower jaw and thick jowls, he did look like a big toad. When he started to literally snap insects out of the air, though, Jones decided he'd had enough. Cletus? He bellowed to summon a gremlin he couldn't find among the throng mingling about chaotically. He jumped when a tiny voice pipped up right next to him.
0: Yeah, boss?
1: Whisk around a razor spine, boy, he cursed. Don't sneak up on me, though he had been the one to sit next to Cletus. He shook his head, then pointed to the little one who might have thought he really was a toad. Little Roscoe's done lost his mind, he said as Roscoe leapt into the air and snatched a buzzing fly in his mouth. He licked his lips as he swallowed it. He was very convincing. Those dead miners is tractin flies and skeeters. Get your bro and drag him carcasses out of ways to feed the war piggies. Yes, boss. Cletus said with a salute as he ran off to fetch his brother to help in the removal of the bodies. Finding one's brother was easy when you were a gremlin, because they thought they were all brothers. Many of them were. It was hard to keep track. Despite his youth, Nino was the best hunter and scout among the remaining Ortega hunters, so they sent him ahead to find out what he could. He watched the gremlin interaction with strange fascination, hidden from their view on a perch just several trees away from the big boss. Nino had the large head of the big boss, Jones, in his sights for some time, though he knew that if he took the shot, the others would scatter or stampede, and the rest of the Ortegas were just beyond the makeshift pens of the deadly warpage that housed at least three large boars that would very easily break through the feeble fencing. Nino cautiously climbed down from the branches and rejoined the others. Santiago stretched his wounded arm and stood as Nino approached. "'What are we up against, Nino? We're ready to go. Give them a few minutes and they'll be eating.' we I've numbered more than five to one. Santiago snorted. So it'll be almost even. Odds are still on us, though. Don't get cocky, Francisco warned. Perduta nodded. "See, sí. Stay focused, Santiago. Don't underestimate these Grandin cabrones. They might accidentally blow your head off, she said seriously. Give me a big Nephilim any day, Francisco agreed. I can at least predict those things. Perduta checked her pistol's ammunition. Neverborns are neverborn, she said, the day it's gremlins. They're disrupting mining shipments and causing all sorts of trouble. Santiago stepped forward, saying, Vermoose, enough talking, let's clean them out. Wait, Perdita said, the clan leader, Jones, he's in this camp? Si, sits apart from the others usually, speaks better than the others. Seems to be trying to make them look like normal people. Dressing them and trying to get them to act less like animals. Even has some armed with guns, but I don't think they know how to use them. You're sure? Berita asked. Nino nodded and she said, Might be worth bringing him in. First that big female Nephilim that attacked Creed and now this. She thought on it for a minute. Almost like Malifaux's fighting back. They're getting stronger, smarter. She tossed her long hair over her shoulder and said, We catch him if we can if not, put him down with the others. We're going to bring the fight to them using their own tactics and turn their own weapons against them. Papa, she said to her father, absently staring at a firefly buzzing languidly nearby, you're going to start a stampede of those big boars. We're driving right into the heart of the Gremlin camp, Santiago sneered. About time, he said. Nino wasn't quite in place when the first dynamite explosion sounded. He cursed and scrambled higher in the tree to find a stable position and get a clearer shot through the thick growth. The high squeal of the great boars followed immediately, and his hand scraped across the rough bark of the twisted knotwood. His repeating rifle swung down, and he sighted through the scope just in time to see a gremlin leap from a tree at Francisco's blindside, far to the right flank of the stampeding boars. He fired upon the creature without aiming, yet put the bullet through the gremlin's head, sending its body spiraling before Francisco. The sound of the rifle fire caught up with him as he hesitated just a moment and gave an appreciative nod towards Nino's general location. He scanned across the area to find Santiago on the left flank, wading into the midst of the largest group, hollering challenges as he went, recklessly striding forward without an attempt to defend himself as they attacked him. His peace bringers flashed as he strode forward, and Nino quickly fired upon the gremlin as they sought to overwhelm his brash cousin. He chambered a bullet and fired, hardly having the time to aim and then chambered another, fired again. He continued to support Santiago until he felt he could handle himself. He sought to find Perdita, and swung the rifle sight to the stampeding boars. True to her plan, she rang among them, charging the gremlin camp, firing her pistol with a subconscious accuracy at anything that moved before her. The boars, alarmed at the explosion, and now the rapid-firing pistol right in their midst squealed in panic. Two of the giant beasts slammed together, trying to crush her, but she hit one on the back with her free hand and cartwheeled over it, catching another gremlin in the chest with a peace bringer strike, even firing in midair. She hit the ground and continued running without missing her stride, her long hair billowing behind her like a sail. Nino whistled appreciatively. He was awfully proud they were related. The gremlins saw her coming and tried to hold their ground, as there were about eleven of them. Nino fired and reloaded faster than he ever had before to clear them out but the boars hit the group, scattering and sending several flying or trampling over them. Perdita was possibly more dangerous up close, charging them with her pistol firing, and she took them down wide-eyed. Nino couldn't believe it when he let loose a bullet, quickly assessing her movement against his shot, determining that as she moved in the melee it would hit her instead of his intended target. No, he cried, though he could do nothing and watched in terror. At the moment the bullet should have struck her back, she stepped quickly aside, and his bullet sank into the gremlin's head directly between his eyes. Nino looked across the distance in disbelief. "'How the hell did you do that?' he asked himself. She plunged back into the midst of the gremlins, looking for their leader. Nino scanned the area for him and saw that Santiago had broken through the line and had the fat boss on the run with Francisco double-timing to his location. A wave of gremlins poured from the underbrush, cutting the men off from Jones.' Perita worked on routing a mob that had converged upon her, finishing them off in quick order. Dita! Nino bellowed. She spun toward him and he fired three rapid shots on the ground near her, marking a line toward Jones. She understood and took off in a flash in the direction he indicated. Nino fired upon Jones several times to wound him, but lost the elusive gremlin in the thickness of the overgrown bayou. Although high in the tree, Nino jumped, catching a limb in his chest he got up and ran, even with the wind knocked so violently from him. He was an Ortega, and he ran despite the pain and stars before his eyes. Stubbornly, he would catch Perdita and provide support. He crashed through the foliage as branches lashed his flesh. The sound of her gun rang out ahead of him. As he broke through the undergrowth, he found them. Perdita fired and hit the big gremlin in the shoulder. Instead of falling, he spun with the impact and faced her. His big gun fired, Scattering the shot in a wide explosion rather than a single bullet, and the foliage all around her burst from the impact. She was thrown backward as the bulk of the explosion struck her in the chest. She landed hard. She didn't move, and her dark hair spread out around her like a dark halo. Her dark skin was torn and burned about her neck and chest, steam rising from her. Jones darted behind a dense cluster of growth for cover. Nino dropped to his cousin's side and thankfully found her alive blinking from the violence of the explosion. Nino nodded in the direction he had fled. "'Where is esse cabron?' she asked, coughing and struggling to shake off the effects of the explosion. Nino nodded in the direction he had fled, seeking cover. From Pedita's revolver, however, there was no safe hiding place. She lifted her gun and peered down the sights, and the world bent to accommodate her shot. Many who have witnessed Perdita performing this shot describe the bullet's trajectory bending around corners to strike its target. The truth, however, was that reality rearranged itself to provide a direct line to her target. As Perdita sighted down the length of her peacebringer, Joan's cover rolled obligingly to the side to reveal the cowering gremlin behind. Only a nervous tick saved the gremlin from Perdita's round, the shot causing the whiskey bottle tethered to his hip to burst into shards of glass. He screamed and hopped up summer Jones, in mortal peril of Perdita's second shot, shivered in fear. "'Looking up, he saw that the cover he'd chosen wasn't a tree or a bush or any other natural growth. "'A great statue towered above him. "'The great orange stone wound at the base and then rose straight up. "'The leafy vines entangling it created the illusion of scales upon a monstrous serpent rising to strike. "'At the sight of it, Jones called out in a shrill cry of terror and ran.' more afraid of the inanimate statue than of Perdita, which Niño found disturbing. Perdita let him run. At the base of this serpentine statue was an emblem, one that Perdita recognized. It was a coiled serpent surrounding a shuttered eye. Niño, she said. We need to contact Crete.
0: Myself, the announcer. Our researchers were interns Jacob and Corbin, reading our stories with the collective moaning of the lingering souls that reside around Foghorn Cemetery. And most importantly of all, Peter and Squishy are the two hamsters that kept the etherbox desk going. Those wheels are making you guys look pumped. And do remember, listeners, stay safe out there because bad things happen.